I know that things are, for me, are coming to an end and that I'm not going to be here for that long. And I can speak truth to power and I can say what I believe is truth and I can help other people be bolder and be more confident. Welcome to Liminal, a podcast from the Aspen Global Leadership Network, where we invite you to explore the space between our greatest challenges and a better future. I'm Dar Vanderbeck, Vice President of the Aspen Global Leadership Network, and I'll be your guide to these conversations. An impact investor, philanthropist, and entrepreneur, Suzanne Beagle has spent her 22-year career at the intersection of gender equity and climate work. As a Caddo Fellow and a beloved member of the Aspen Global Leadership Network, Suzanne is renowned for her ability to bring people together, to foster collaboration, and to drive change. She's championed the idea that combining gender and climate investment can yield powerful results in both mitigating climate change and promoting gender equality, and has called on herself and the AGLN on numerous occasions to come together around these issues. Suzanne embodies the essence of a values-driven leader. In today's episode, we have the privilege of delving into Suzanne's journey as she confronts one of life's greatest challenges, a diagnosis of incurable cancer. In this liminal moment, Suzanne has been ignited. It is with immense gratitude that Suzanne joins us on this episode of Liminal to explore the depths of life, legacy, and leadership. In this conversation, we talk everything from what it feels like to live in your purpose, to vulnerability in our leadership, and to how a terminal diagnosis has made it easier to speak her truth. But first, we start with clarity. You asked me, Dar, the question about where and how I felt clear since my diagnosis. And this is quite a serious diagnosis. There's no cure for what I have. And I found myself when I was told where I was in the picture with this immense sense of clarity around my purpose, around how I wanted to spend my time, who I wanted to be with, what I wanted to focus on in the world, the kinds of people with values that I wanted to be around and that I've never been so clear in my life. I've been a person who's been very clear. Don't mark me wrong. I've been a successful entrepreneur and philanthropist and investor. I've been a board member. I've been, I've played a lot of roles in the world. Nobody would say that I was an unclear person. And yet this sense of immense clarity around where I am and what I'm meant to be doing how I'm meant to be is extraordinary. And I've never felt this level of flow before. And it's a gift. And I don't know why one needs to have a terminal illness diagnosis to have such a gift. But I have, I have this gift that I've been given. And it is probably a combination of you have this much time, although nobody really knows how much time one has, You have this kind of opportunity to make choices. I'm very lucky to be in a position to make choices. 
I don't take that for granted. I've created an endowment, which is my legacy from my husband and I, which is focused on climate and gender and the intersection and the nexus of climate and gender investing and how we use finance as a tool for social and environmental change. And I've started that literally after I got my diagnosis. So most people might have said, I'm going to go crawl in a hole or I'm going to go focus on being in the hospital, which I've had to do quite a lot in the last five months, or I'm going to go lie on a couch somewhere. But I somehow got it that I not only wanted a beautiful place to be with the ability to be with amazing people and thinkers and doers and lovers and challengers, but the ability to create this, create this endowment and create this opportunity to say to the world, this is important, this is today, this is now, this is essential, and really get to say what I think and do what I mean. It's so, as you were saying earlier, I would never think of you as someone that wasn't clear on their purpose. (laughs) Always, you know, daring leadership in so many ways. So I'm kind of curious how it feels different in your body now. So how it feels different is, again, this level of flow. And I'm not going to say that every day I feel this level of flow and this level of clarity. There's that, that would be insane, actually. I have doubts. I have so many things which I wonder about, that I'm curious about, that I'm not sure about. And I have pain and I have my medical reality gets in the way pretty significantly. But that said, what it feels like is not having too hard a time making decisions. I'm making decisions more easily. I'm making decisions about who and where and how I want to be. And I'm also really exploring the question of Zen and openness, curiosity, presence, being really present feels really special because I think there are a lot of times in my life where I couldn't say that I was really present. And as a leader, it's very easy to find yourself not present. You get so caught up in what you're trying to accomplish and what you've set out as your bold mission and the people and the process and the things that to really be present is a gift. And this has forced me in a way to really be present. I mean, there's just no choice about it. I was listening over the weekend to this conversation between Rick Rubin and Trent Reznor around flow and around creativity. And there is this reflection around like, that there's a difference between being an artist and an entertainer and the Mm -hmm. idea of being really busy and not effectively not being present was a good way to escape seeing if you're really an artist, seeing if you really had something to say, like if your work mattered. And that was just sticking with me over the weekend around like, oh, that's such an interesting angle on presence to confront the fear 
that many of us as leaders have, which is like, do I have something to say that's important? So anyway, as you're talking, I'm like, it feels like there's a less anxiety around that experience, maybe willingness to just face it. And more willingness to just be bold and say, this is my reality. Yeah. And, and I can speak truth to power and I can say what I believe is truth and I can help other people be bolder and be more, mm-hmm. more confident, more competent, more connected. Because I know that things are, for me, are coming to an end. Maybe that's part of it. And that uh, I'm not going to be here for that long. But also that why don't we say what we mean? Why don't we say that we only want to have authentic conversations and that we really want to say the truth more often and, and more quickly? I think it's a missed opportunity that we have. And somehow this has given me license. It's like the like terminal diagnosis of living a human life. And yet we cannot pay attention to that part of it. <laughs> but I don't know what you're saying is like, yeah, we're like, why do I need a terminal diagnosis to make all of these really clear choices and speak truth? And, you know, it's relevant for everyone. <laughs> That's, that has the gift and the curse of being human, but it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. And, it, and when you are especially a leader who is convening people to get to an end point that is a collaborative, successful connected endpoint, you make these choices, you make these decisions about I'm going to be diplomatic and I'm going to be, I'm going to be really careful about how I say what I say, how somebody might take that. And there, there's a lot of power questions that are wrapped up in that. And yeah. I, think we're, I think we're not comfortable thinking about power dynamics and power relationships in ways where we can take them somewhere really productive without, without hurting people, without, without it being a negative. Right. I'll say in my own life, what has kept me from speaking truth in some situations was if I spoke the truth, I would crack the foundation and, you know, mm-hmm. we need to preserve this thing in order for the work to keep going. And maybe another narrative I hold is like, I need to keep the conversation going so I don't want to like ruin it <laughs> with my truth, which is, which is like crazy to say out loud because it's like, no, I, I surely can find a way to, we're resilient enough to hear and be with each other. And there's skills in telling our truth in a way that actually strengthens a foundation instead of cracks it. But yeah, as you're saying, there's all these risks involved in that, that I feel like become clear. Risks and perceived risks. You know, we think that, okay, I do a lot of work with banks and financial institutions. And some of them have been sponsors of my work and they've been important sponsors. And so how do I say in a climate context, for example, a climate and gender context, yes, you've done a billion dollars of good, but you've done $500 billion of bad around financing the fossil fuel economy and financing the very things that are creating the problems that we're now having to solve. It takes a lot to then be able to say to somebody, this is what you're doing. Do you see what you're doing? Do you see how this is affecting the world, the planet, all of us? And 
why does it take throwing off the fear because I know I'm not going to be around to feel okay saying that? Yeah, what if, how do you say that now in a way you might not have 10 years ago? You're like, what have you learned from that process once you buck the fear of preservation? I think at this point I have nothing to lose. I, nobody can do anything. I can, nobody can fire me. Nobody can unfund me. Nobody can, you know, I, I just have nothing that somebody can make happen that's going to that's gonna affect my life in a way that my medical situation is going to affect my life. And so for me, I can actually come out and say, these are the numbers. These are the IPCC numbers, for example. These are the drawdown numbers. This is what counts. This is what Al Gore has been talking about for, for so long and the rest of us. To just feel comfortable saying to people, every investor needs to be a climate investor and every climate investor needs to be a gender lens investor. And if you're not, let me help you understand what that means and what that looks like. And if I'm going to just assume that it's a gap in your knowledge rather than that you're a bad actor or that you don't actually have the ability to, to buy in, but just how you make choices about what assumptions you make. You know, I just, I just think we all have that capability and we all have the capability to relook at the what are the possibilities? Where's, where's the imagination about what's possible? Where is the system's thinking that goes behind this? And how can we all be better systems thinkers? Again, from a power standpoint, say to somebody, I'm going to be in a different relationship with you. I choose to be in a different relationship with you. And I choose to have this be something where I'm going to work hard for you to understand, for us to understand how we can be in that different relationship together so that we can get to a different outcome. That line, I choose to be in a different relationship with you, is like there's so much wisdom packed into that. Both the realizing the ability, the need for it, the ability to do it, that we are in relationship with others, be that systems or individuals or corporations but then also craft a communication that's kind of bringing up a different kind of moral imagination into what a different type of relating is. But we get stuck and there's an opportunity to be like, let me show you a different way that this can go. Yeah, and I think that storytelling and that ability to give examples and give tangible descriptions that are compelling is really essential so that we can help people see something that they just couldn't see before. You know that thing about you're driving along a highway and somebody says something about seeing red cars and you never saw red cars before you weren't watching for red cars and now they mention red cars and now you can't not see the red cars. So once you've seen something, then the ability to not unsee it and to find a compelling way to help people expand their imagination about not only the outcome, but the relationships and the way you do something, the way you ask questions, the way you share knowledge and information, the way you share the gifts that you bring and that you ask for things. I think that's one of the things that I've been honing in my medical life that I'm also honing in my endowment life, which is how to ask how to ask for what I need, how to ask the questions that I don't understand. Can you help me understand the implications of this? 
And in the investment world, we are so tied to not asking questions because we're afraid of being perceived as not knowledgeable or the competence. We're just, we're just trained to not ask these questions. And the reality is we need to be asking better questions. We need to, because it has huge impact. And these decisions that we're making, and I'm right in the heart of the decisions about, we're only investing in funds, in mostly private equity, venture capital, private debt, fund managers that are illiquid. And we're asking really different kinds of questions of these fund managers. And just the fact of how we're asking the questions is transformative. You know, we're really asking questions about gender, racial equity, around, around power, around structure, around relationship, around how are you going to make those changes? What's your value additionality? What is the connection between, in our case, climate and gender? And people are coming back and saying, can you help me understand this? Because I'm really intrigued. Can yeah. you give me tools? Can you give me resources? Can you give me a playbook? And that's fantastic when you, somebody you talk to, four days later, you've asked them questions and they come back and they've written a five-page document about how they want to now start thinking about this. It's, it's amazing. I was thinking about just how like the implications to one's ego from being in a place of, you know, just asking great questions that that's like a tide that can erode or reveal or, I don't know, there's something, there's some beautiful, natural vision around that. (laughs) I love that image. I love that image of, because I'm a sailor and I'm obsessed with the ocean Mm -hmm. and I was a diver. And so if I think about waves on the shore, the tidal effect, the ripple effect, just the power of that movement you can feel stronger by asking naive questions. And it's very, for women especially, it feels dangerous. It feels scary to put yourself out on the limb like that because you're supposed to show up knowledgeable and confident and completely clear. And yet I think there's something so powerful about being able to be asking questions in a setting where all of that perceived competence is flying around. And I'm, and I'm going to say perceived because I do think that I'm just going to go out. I hate generalizations, but I'm just going to do one. Guys make things up. And <laughs> the data is that men will have 20% of the knowledge and they'll act as if they have 80% of the knowledge. And women will have 80% of the knowledge and they'll act as if they have 20% of the knowledge. And you can look at that in interviews, you can look at that in presentations, you can look at that in all kinds of settings. And there's just a lot of, I'll just say it, BS that goes on that is, again, this perceived expertise. And I think that breaking that down is really powerful. It's just, it can be surprising, it can give you surprising answers, outcomes, experience, if you're open to it. I feel like we're touching on all these areas around like how else have you changed since this diagnosis? I've become more okay with expressing my feelings and expressing my vulnerability because it's real. 
and because I'm choosing to be really real with people. And I have to say, not everybody makes that choice. I have learned that courage can come from unlikely sources and your friends, your colleagues, your, you know, people who you might not even realize you have shared experience with. You discover shared experience and that can have a ripple effect with all kinds of other things. When you're vulnerable, and as a leader, it's very hard to be vulnerable, but when you're vulnerable, you often will engender more vulnerability coming from the other person that you're with. And that can open up extraordinary opportunities. It can open up extraordinary dialogues and insight and sharing and support that you just never would have expected. So I think those are a couple of things for me is that vulnerability and also the, the willingness to talk about where my, where my fear is as well as where my courage is. Yeah. Where is your fear and where is your courage right now? Mm-hmm. Part of where my fear is, is the not knowing. And I've been through such extraordinary pain in the last months that you just wonder, when is it coming again? How is it coming again? I don't dwell in that, but that's where some of the fear is. I think some of the fear is in grieving what I have lost or what I might be perceiving that I've lost. And I had a conversation this morning about the need to grieve. We all have a need to grieve different things in our lives. And they may be about health, they may be about money, they may be about social justice, they may be about all kinds of things. But there is this need that we have to be allowed to grieve for what is, what is coming your way, what is coming at you. And then where's my courage? My courage is I've been through hell and I feel unstoppable. I feel like there's nothing that I haven't been through that I can't, that I can't take. Like it's quite, it's bizarre. I feel so strong and I do feel this courage around believing that my ideas matter, believing that this importance that I'm placing on climate and gender, investing and using investing as a tool for social change and setting up this endowment and having a piece of it, by the way, be about neurodiversity, which is my husband's piece of it. He has a lot of pieces, but he is, he's autistic and we have carved out a piece of our grant making, which is gonna be very much about neurodiversity. It's really profound, the conversations we're having. They're amazing. And he's such an incredible thinker and so articulate. And it's a privilege. It's an incredible gift that we're getting. And so the courage then also to be out there with our ideas and say, this is important and this matters. Yeah. Has, has your like idea of what courage is changed at all? Is a great question. I do think that courage is wrapped up in vulnerability in a way that's really profound. I do think that there's also the courage to say, 
I have a big idea, I want to put it out there. But that's maybe not such a big new idea. But I have an idea, I want to put it out there, and I believe that other people will also think that this is important. And I also think there's an element of my values are very much centered in integrity, leading to action, and I have a really strong bias for action, and I have a really strong presence around integrity. And I have a friend, a good friend, who has been following me, watching me invest for 18 years, named Joy Anderson, who has a think tank called Criterion Institute. And she said, I've been watching you, and I think that the essence of your investing has always been grounded in integrity and leading to action. And it's fantastic to see that reflected back from somebody else who very kindly has made these observations. And so I think it's really powerful when you can live in your values and have the courage to really not, not worry that somehow people will think they don't matter. There's something that's coming up for me from what you just shared too around the relationship between courage and grief. That there's like the need to grieve kind of deepens the well that courage might even be able to emerge from. It feels like they're in conversation with one another. This aspect of being allowed to grieve, also being allowed to be anti-toxic positivity, yeah. When people get hold of a piece of good news and then they want to just be all about that, it can be really exhausting. And then they applaud you for your courage and they applaud you for these things that, to me, that's that can be really toxic. And my husband and I have talked about, Daniel and I have talked about this a lot. It's not helpful. And I think that this ability to say, I need time to grieve, and this ability to say... I need time to just be sad right now. I need time to be with people quietly and that it it can't always be about, yeah, making a lot of noise about how courageous you are or that that can be really unhelpful. The poet Ross Gay, they have this poem called The Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. I would love to, just coming up for me, I would love to just share a line from it that's really speaking to what you're speaking. Soon it will be over, which is precisely what the child in my dream said, holding my hand, pointing at the roiling sea and the sky, hurtling our way like so many buffalo, who said, it's much worse than we think, and sooner, to whom I said, no duh, child in my dreams. What do you think this singing and shuddering is? What this screaming and reaching out and dancing and crying is? other than loving what every second that goes away. Goodbye, I mean to say, and thank you every day. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, just came up as you were talking about how to be courageous requires us to know how to grieve in a deeper way or like what else would we be doing? (laughs) And instead of toxic positivity, like taking count, taking stock of what we're facing. And being yeah. courageous from that place is something that you just really seem to be embodying. And while we're on the topic of poetry, I'll come back at you with my favorite poet, Mary Oliver, and a line from her beautiful poem called Ponds. But it starts with still, what I want in my life is to be willing to be dazzled, 
to cast aside the weight of facts and maybe even to float a little above this difficult world. I want to believe I'm looking into the white fire of a great mystery. I want to believe that the imperfections are nothing and that the light is everything, that it is more than the sum of each flawed blossom rising and fading, and I do. And I do. So one, I guess, maybe last question for us is, you know, in our, in our fellowships, we talk a lot about moving from success to significance, which in some ways is a conversation about legacy. And it's like it undergirds, I think, what we're talking about today. How are you reflecting on, on legacy and, and any, you know, any advice or thoughts for our community of fellows who are in some ways in this conversation about legacy? You know, on the one hand, I'm reflecting that I am just one pebble on the shore and that my legacy is wrapped up in the legacy of the thousands of other Aspen Fellows and what kind of change they're making in the world. And I see all the connections of all the things that we're all doing. And on the other hand, I feel like I do have something important to say about we're in a terrifying place around the climate crisis. We're in a terrifying place around the inequality crisis. And if it's 2023 and we're not waking up and doing something about this and using all the tools that we have, whether it's investment or philanthropy or public policy or education or anything that we, communication, anything we might have, I feel like my legacy is to be bold and to be an actor, just to be another actor who says, we can do this, we can do something about this. If we have resources, we can take the money and take it off the sidelines and put it into action. If we have influence because we are connected with social influence, then we can use that. Whatever resources we have, if it's the power of proximity and the power of lived experience, that we've got that ability to speak to that as part of our legacy. And in my case, I go from feeling really small to really big, and really big to really small. Again, my legacy is there are and there should be thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people waking up and thinking about the climate crisis and what they can do and waking up and thinking about, again, gender inequality, racial inequality, class inequality, neurodiversity inequality. (laughs) We all have this gift of being able to live into our legacy and we shouldn't have to wait for a terminal illness diagnosis to live into it. And so if I think about my request to my fellow fellows and my, my ask, my offer, it's recognize that we all have this chance, this opportunity to expand our imaginations, to expand our possibilities about what we can do, to live into it and to be bold and to be action-oriented, to recognize that, as my girlfriend Tracy Gray says, whether you have a piggy bank or you own a bank, whether you have, you know, $5 or $5 million, 
we are enough. We have enough. And we don't need to be sitting there feeling like we don't have enough. So that's my offer and my request and my, and my deep, deep hope for my fellow fellows is just recognize how powerful a community this is. And when we support each other and when we are amplifying each other, it's like nothing else in the world. It gives people strength. It gives people hope. It gives people confidence. It gives people the desire to go out and stand on a stage and make a claim and do something about it. Not just stand on a stage and make a claim, but do something about it and be real. Yeah, point to the bleachers, you know? <laughs> like, that's what we're going to do in this life. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, Susanna, we love you. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and you just your experience with our community. It allows us to feel more grief and it allows us to be more courageous. Thank you, Dar. I'm really glad that you're there to help us see the power that's in everybody in this community and to help realize those relationships and help realize the power that's here. It's, it's just, it's quite profound what we are creating and what we've created in this community. And thank you for giving me the chance to talk to you today. Uh, well, we are with you. And thank you for being thank with you. us. As Suzanne mentioned, she and her husband, Daniel, recently launched Heading for Change, an endowment to tackle the twin crises of climate change and gender inequality through a multi-asset class portfolio. They are actively raising funds for the endowment and looking for a partnership. If you're someone who can support fund managers at the intersection of climate and gender equity work, or who are invested in learning about neurodivergent thinking, go to headingforchange.org to learn how you can get involved. You can also hear more about Suzanne's lifetime of impact in a special video conversation between her and AGLN moderator Betsy Fleming on the AGLN website. Liminal is a podcast by the Aspen Global Leadership Network, the AGLN, a part of the Aspen Institute. It's produced by Samantha Cherry, Philip Havliana, and edited by Colby Hartberg. Our cover art is designed by J.L. Lewis. New episodes are released the last Saturday of every month. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow the AGLN at Aspen AGLN on social to stay connected with the community. Before we ended our conversation, I had one more question for Suzanne. Poetry, music, and art are all so important to what binds us as people and as AGLN. So I'd love for you to outro us with some music and maybe share a little bit about your relationship with the color pink. <laughs> so I'm lucky, I'm lucky enough to be going to see pink in Hyde Park on Sunday. I have two bands, uh, performers that I absolutely love. One is called Pink Martini, uh, 
and the other is pink. And I had breast cancer when I was going through my fellowship and people kept sending me things that were pink and I absolutely hated pink. I didn't want anything pink in my life. But now I have completely embraced pink and I think that um, pink has a new album called Trust Fall. Pink Martini has the most extraordinary set of music um, and art and it's poetic and it's fun and it's crazy and they're they're absolutely brilliant and I get to I get to have both pinks in my life so thank you for asking if you share Suzanne's newfound love for all things pink and want to listen to the music that fills her days we have a playlist linked in our show notes